Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nikolic and I'm incredibly excited to bring you today's episode with Professor Matthew Sanders, who's here to talk to us about parenting and also how to improve it across the world. This is an inspirational conversation with someone who knows parenting better than anyone that I know of, in particular because the research that Professor Sanders has put together over decades with his team and in his capacity has been phenomenal. He's not only brought an intervention towards how to do training for parents but also other primary caregivers he's also been a very strong voice in how to consider policy and that's what's been excited about exciting about today's episode before we begin let me tell you a little bit about professor sanders he is professor of clinical psychology and director of the parenting and family support center at the university of queensland he has been a consulting professor at the University of Manchester, a visiting professor at the University of South Carolina and has held adjunct professorships at Glasgow Caledonian University and the University of Auckland. As the founder of the Triple P Positive Parenting Program, Professor Sanders is considered a world leader in the development, implementation, evaluation and dissemination of population-based approaches to parenting and family interventions. The Triple P program is currently in use in 50 plus countries worldwide and Professor Sanders' work has been widely recognised by his peers. In 2007, he received the Australian Psychological Society's President's Award for Distinguished Contribution to Psychology in, uh, sorry, and in 2004, he received an International Collaborative Prevention Science Award from the Society for Prevention Research in the US. In 2007, he received the Trailblazers Award from the Parenting and Family Special Interest Group in the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. And in 2008, was uh, became fellow of the New, uh, New Zealand Psychological Society. Professor Sanders has also won a Distinguished Career Award from the Australian Association for, for Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, was named Honorary President of the Canadian Psychological Association in 2009, was Queenslander of the Year in 2007. He is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia, the Australian Psychological Society, the New Zealand Psycholo Psychological Society and the Australian Association for Behavioural Cognitive Behaviour Therapy. He received the Queenslander Greats Award from the, from the Queensland Government in 2018. As you can see, 
Professor Sanders is incredibly distinguished and really knows his his area and his expertise. I fumbled so many times in his biography because it's so long and his achievements have been great. So I'm really pleased to have him on the show. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Matthew Sanders. Matt, a really big thank you for coming onto the show today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. As you know, Matt, I've been trying to get in contact for a little while with regards to you know the work that you've been doing, not only now current, but also previously. Uh, it's something that I'm very passionate about being a parent and, and, and a father. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a, a new parent myself, even though mine are five and eight. Uh, I still feel brand new to to it all, so really appreciate you coming on, and I hope I can steal some uh, some ideas from you. You know, not only individually, but but maybe this broader conversation about how we can parent in Australia better. Well, Nesh, I've got to say, uh, you're always going to be a new parent. Doesn't matter how old you are, and I mean, I'm a parent now, a grandparent with my kids in their 40s and five grandkids, and I'm still learning, and I will until I die. So the most fundamental thing about preparation for parenthood, we should never think about it in terms of what you have to learn in the first thousand days of life alone and think that every consecutive thousand days of life creates an opportunity for uh, always reflecting on how we're going in our parenting role and there's never a single one right answer. But if you, th- if you think about parenthood as something that you, you know, you're a newbie or an old hand, uh, it can close you off to the openness you need to know how to solve a problem, particularly at like times like this where there's a lot of stress and a lot of uncertainty in the future. Matt, I know that you previously have had a real impact in Australians, how we parent, and now I believe 35 other countries as, as well in your Triple P program for, for, for parenting. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about before we maybe step into you know, focusing a little bit more on, on Australia? It's interesting, isn't it, when you just sort of reflect back on the history and how things actually came about. Um, I did my very first work on parenting when I was uh, in Auckland in New Zealand. I've been in Australia since uh, 1979, and I completed my um, first three degrees at the University of Auckland, and then uh, I completed my doctorate over here and joined the academic staff of the University of Queensland. My PhD actually focused upon... um, developing a brief home coaching model of parenting for children with early onset conduct problems. Uh, And it was sort of like a treatment intervention with sort of home visiting and coaching and feedback and so on with a particular lens around it, which had to do with self-regulation. And it was to do with how can we teach skills in a way that enables parents to transfer their learnings of those skills to other problems, other settings, other siblings at different points in time. So um, the doctoral work that I did uh, and completed in 1981 served as the foundational um, model for the development over time into what is now a uh, a complex multi-level system. Remember, it started as a treatment program, individual one-on-one, expensive to deliver, effective but not scalable. 
And I could immediately recognize way back then that we're dealing with a much bigger problem than, you know, doing individual home visiting and coaching of parents with problem kids. And we needed a model capable of being scaled and to be scaled in a way that would lead to essentially a blending of universal and targeted interventions. Now, if you think about a beginning with self-regulation, focusing on teaching parents through self-regulation approaches how to be effective in their parenting role, well, what transpires is that ultimately the model is about teaching children the self-regulation skills they need teaching parents the uh, self-regulatory capabilities that enable them to be effective in their parenting role and then apply it at a systems level to uh, practitioners, to supervisors, to trainers, to organisations. So fundamentally, you have an integrated multi-level system all based on a, a, a conceptual framework that is blended learning theory, cognitive, uh, um, CBT, um, uh, uh, developmental principles, uh, self-regulation theory, public health models, communication models, so that you've got a essentially a systems contextual perspective where there's not a one-size-fits-all and that you've got a system that is deliverable at a population level where the goal is shifting the needle in terms of the number of kids who develop preventable behavioural and emotional problems or uh, are abused as children by their families. So I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying uh, how it came about, but it's taken four decades of absolutely committed research and the contributions of a number of other great minds along the way who've often started off as doctoral students and now colleagues who are continuously uh, in a process of allowing research and evidence to inform the nuances of how we best support parents in a changing world. I think that's a really significant point there about trying to find an evidence-based approach that really not only is something that we can hang our hat on and say we know this works, but it, it examines the contextual factors that hopefully is relayed or, or adopted, absorbed by parents because the contexts are so different. You know, we, in so many ways, each family, each roof has its own culture. And I'm not talking about cultural backgrounds. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the way that we parent is a culture, you know, the way that we, we live, we've got our own little cultures. And so having uh, approaches that are fundamentally based in, in science and understood and then relayed to the average layperson, you know, as parents, um, you know, is, 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 is so important. Could I just make an observation, however, about what an evidence base truly is that's sure. up to the task of informing the way in which parenting advice uh, is evolved. Because, you know, the gold standards of uh, randomised trials um, where, in fact, you've got uh, comparator conditions that can uh, be offered uh, and you're validating a new intervention compared to some kind of control. But when you have a community that's already adopted 
a, an evidence-based practice at a population level, your control conditions are actually interventions that are evidence-based. So you're comparing a new intervention to business as usual that is more evidence-based. So that has big implications for effect sizes, uh, the sample size you're going to need to detect now what might amount to a small difference because you're comparing what's new with something that is already good. And that has massive implications for the kinds of evidence we need to accrue. So we need a larger number of multi-site, large-scale trials that enable us to look at moderators, mediators, mechanisms of change. Now, the other thing that I'd say is that I've gone um, way beyond just thinking the only form of evidence that we should pay attention to is randomised trial data. I mean, we should be looking at service-based evaluations. We should be looking mm. at qualitative methods um, because at a different part of the research and development cycle, different research methods actually inform the evidence base, particularly about whether something is culturally acceptable. Um, you know, an assumption, I think, has been, oh, because this might have been developed in uh, a Western part of the world, it's not going to be relevant in Asia or in the Middle East and uh, more collectivistic cultures. Our experience with Triple P is the opposite. Those things that tend to work tend to work everywhere. You know, I mean, we've done research in 37 countries. There's now 58 countries that are using Triple P with comparable effects, despite huge differences in culture, socioeconomic conditions, uh, values, um, the kinds of religions, the political climate. And my belief, it's because we're allowing culture to inform parents' goals, their aspirations. A self-regulation framework allows you to infuse what's important to the parent in context, and then we can provide them with the tools to enable them to accomplish what they wish to accomplish with their children. And, you know, the thing that is amazing to me, parents everywhere want very similar things for their kids. You know, they want them to be healthy and happy. They want them to have good friends. They want them to do well at school. But by God, they want them to go to bed at night and they want them to stop throttling each other. They want them to stop embarrassing each other in public. A temper tantrum in downtown Tehran looks very similar to one in Tokyo or in Sydney or in Canberra or in Brisbane. There's a limited range of options. It's almost universally embarrassing to the parent. It doesn't matter where you are. A lot of people are motivated by two things in that environment. Turn it off quickly and get out of the spotlight. And if you think about that fundamental motivator, our experience is that parents in many, many different cultures, you know what they're highly attuned to? What works at all in a situation where your kids throw a temper tantrum in a public place? And so long as the message is conveyed in a way that's respectful, um, non-prescriptive, occasions the parent forming their own view about whether this is for them, whether it might work for them, but encourages them to trial it, evaluate it, rework it, refine it, you know. So where's that not going to work? It's... Uh Beautiful, because it really comes from that space of, I know this is a catchword and, and it sometimes is grinding, but, you know, mindfulness of, of down-regulating and, you know, pausing, taking a breath, being deliberate in one's actions, which 
effectively means when you deliver it, you're probably asking values-based questions. You're asking, you know, what's important right now? You know, these things tend to, to, to come out of that place of, you know, pausing and assessing and considering before acting. <laughs> The tricky part, though, is that remember speed is uh, the problem. Is that we're, when we're talking about getting kids in and out of the car, and you've you know you're trying to get your shopping in, they're fighting in the back back you know the back of the car or whatever. Um, the whole idea of processes to slow you down and to chill out and just kind of relax are actually hard to execute in transitional environments that involve concurrent, multiple, and competing stressors. And so if you think about being in the moment, it's much less about controlling, you know, your, your kind of your, your mood and that kind of thing and calming down. It's much more about attunement to what it is you need to do to address the issue right in front of you right now. And that requires really sustained focus on what children are doing. You know, what set it off? What What's my plan here? Um, what have I prepared for? So you need to be able to activate those self-regulatory processes that are action-focused to enable the parent to be observant and tuned in to the antecedents and consequences of what's going on to then say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, which could include just pausing, step back, take a few deep breaths, get in the moment again, calm myself down. But you can't do that if your kid's about to run across a, uh, um, uh, you know, you've got a preschooler and you've got a, a, a younger child and you're concerned about their safety in a public place, getting lost, getting run over. So sometimes the moments of pausing and reflection have to be scheduled a little later when you've actually in a, setting or a context that even allows you to do it. It doesn't have to be a lot later, but so this is, the, this is the thing that I'm really focused on is what works for parents in what kind of situations and when does it not work? Um, so if you think about Triple P and the 17 core skills that are there, um, you know, people sometimes say, Oh, look at those! Look at those um, strategies. Um, you know that's yesterday's news, or that we want to do it in a different way. You know what? Often they don't realise is that every single strategy works and fails under certain circumstances. So you know, and if you introduce the parent to the idea that um, there's no magic bullets here. It's about getting the right combination of strategies, trialing and testing them to make sure they're fit for purpose for this child in this situation for that kind of problem. And it's, um, I think we've, we've got a very simplistic view of the skills. And sometimes you're criticised as a program developer for, for example, for using timeout or for using quiet time or using some other, you know, to praise, for example. But we never say to parents, this is a panacea. Mm -hmm. All of these strategies work and fail under certain circumstances and are contraindicated. Therefore, a self-regulation framework is crucial to get the combinations that have a good cultural and contextual fit. Isn't that one of the great challenges that we have as psychologists from a public policy perspective is that we are, as a community, somewhat geared to try and find tips 
and strategies. And, and what you're discussing here is not about a toolbox of tips, but rather a philosophy. It's a way of approaching parenting, not saying here are your 17 best tips that yeah. we have. It, it, it's really about self-reflection and kind of considering how do I do parenting and, and, and why did this particular intervention work in this particular moment for, you know, this particular child? And, and, and these are all really just But one not moment. with my other child. Yeah, yeah. And, but and, not with and, my other child. Yeah, it's – can I just um, pick up on that? Because um, I suppose that the way, I'm, the way I think about it these days is that it's definitely the case that certain combinations of strategies have been demonstrated over and over to work in solving particular problems, like dealing with a tantrum or aggression. But it doesn't mean it works for you in this environment of your family, under the stress you're in, your extended family network. Um, and therefore, any evidence-based solution um, can never be thought of as a panacea. And this is why I'm saying that the parent themselves, there's another skill they need other than to be open to new learning and to develop strategies that are consistent with their goals and aspirations. And the, the, the third piece of it is track the outcomes. Did it work for you? And if it didn't, don't keep doing it. Change it. But how long do you give it a trial for and you can get professional advice about that but remember parenting is for the long haul parenting support is usually temporary and transitional and most of the time you're making the call on how you deal with the problem on your own in isolation even if you're in a couple and have got good social support and so therefore the skills that are fundamental to being able to continue that parenting journey has a lot to do with self-regulatory capacity and willingness to reflect and change. And it's not just sort of like the sort of how are we doing kind of thing. It's more, is this strategy that I've put in place to help my kids do chores around the house actually working? And um, don't be satisfied as a parent to just get a bit of advice and try it and walk away from it because it could be it's not being implemented the way it needs to to make it work. And all I'd say is that because parenting support is temporary and transitional, professionals have to view their role as scaffolding parents' own self-regulatory processes in being the best parent that they would like to be. And we shouldn't be judgy. We shouldn't be prescriptive. And so our role becomes one of what's the minimally sufficient level of support we need to provide to this person to get on with it, not to get formulaic about, oh, this is a 10-session program and that, that's a five-session one and get so bogged down with things that are related to ensuring a, a revenue stream relating to the service provider and much more attuned to what's necessary to solve the problem. And so as soon as we have that lens, we start to think about it differently. There's so many nuances to, to this, and I imagine that's part of the great challenge of, of informing public policy. I know 
uh, in preparing for our conversation, I, I read some um, articles from your colleagues from the uh, uh, written on in the Parenting and Family Research Alliance, particularly in relation to um, how do we involve parents in the mental health care plan initiative? You know, the Better Access Initiative, yeah. which you know yeah. to date is somewhat missed uh, in a crucial mark, which is you know uh, uh, appointments that are. Um, uh, funded, well, not funded, uh, uh, that are rebated by Medicare require that the child is is, is involved. Um, Makes in no sense. Or when, in actual fact, you know, parents uh, might often or, or quite often would benefit immensely from having a session without the young person in there. To, oh, to yeah, so they can say what guidance. they really, so they can say what they're actually concerned about <laughs> without worrying about how the children are listening and. You know, I, I just think it's very disrespectful to enforce a situation where you're putting a professional in a situation that is contraindicated conceptually, professionally. And, I mean, taking on the, the Medicare item numbers to make sure that uh, parent-only sessions are possible was not only important to do, but it's pleasing to see that the government has made moves in that area so yes. that it is now possible. But remember, um, the whole mental health system is totally clogged. I mean, if it's taking six months to get into see psychologists and so on, it's all very well to have a funding mechanism to enable a psychologist to deliver evidence-based parenting programs. Fantastic. But psychologists are not the solution to parenting problems on their own. This is a multidisciplinary issue and that uh, we need to design systems, public health systems, that uh, allow for multiple disciplines to contribute to the delivery of evidence-based practices that are suited to their practice environments and their professional role. And it has to be based on a high degree of respectfulness from one discipline to another and avoidance of attempts to control the patch or dominate the territory. And particularly as psychologists, we need to fundamentally recognise that we are only part of the solution. And if we try to control our psychological knowledge through a guild mentality saying this is ours, um, we are absolutely guaranteeing we will not solve these problems at a global level. Because most countries with kids with massive problems don't even have psychologists or have a very, very uh, inadequate mental health workforce. So as... Um, as a psychologist, as a professor of clinical psychology, I have moved from how we train our clinical students, which is really important, and we still do it in programs like Triple P, um, to how do we train pediatricians? How do we train nurses? How do we train uh, special educators? Um, how do we work in a, a, a work environment where you're thinking about parenting in the context of work-life balance? And so that we have to, to see ourselves as part of a solution. But I tell you, the, a lot of the, um, the energy and creative thinking and the theory building is from our disciplinary base, but we don't own it. It's in the public domain. Mm. We can maybe control the who can call themselves a psychologist, but let's not delude ourselves that our discipline is the only one capable of producing evidence-based solutions when they're implemented. They're trained well in the first place and they're adequately supervised. 
So it's, and I mean, to be honest, the way in which uh, clinical psychology is dealing with children's issues and parenting is really pretty poor, in my view, because it gets to so few children and so few parents. And until now, the Medicare system basically funded child-related therapies that have got very limited evidence to support their work because the things that do work were precluded under how you could deliver, deliver them. And my, my feeling is that we're not going to shift the needle on mental health problems with children and youth without parenting and families being central to um, the intervention space. What do you think are the obstacles to this public you know, policy in terms of how we get this message at a more national oh. level? I mean, I don't see any advertisement around, you know, parenting per se, you know, in particular. Well, you see a lot around mental oh. health in this kind of global sense, but you don't hear about the importance of parenting. Oh, Nish, I'm so pleased you asked that question because it is so frustrating. I mean, the, the, the literature, the evidence would show a, a change in parenting capability is related to a diverse range of outcomes, including mental health, but it's also related to children's self-regulatory capacity, how well they do in school, their peer relationships, um, how well they function and when they're playing sport. Um, in terms of parenting from the sideline, influencing, you know, kids' enjoyment and participation in sport. Um, it's, it's related to whether they develop uh, into a life of crime or being at risk of substance abuse, um, drink driving. Um, it, it goes on and on. In other words, there is a failure to recognise both in policy and also in mental health leadership the crucial co importance of the family and parenting as a common pathway to, inter to produce outcomes across diverse outcomes. But it's all, um, what's the word, silo-based funding. So the parenting work that goes on in mental health is not connected really to the parenting work in the disability space or in, uh, in child protection or in um, schools. And therefore, we don't have this recognition and policy um, that... It's actually parenting is of all of the modifiable, potentially modifiable risk and protective factors associated with child mental health, um, resilience and well-being and, and uh, avoidance of child maltreatment. None, nothing is more important than the quality of parenting that children receive and the, their family relationships. I mean, other things uh, are important, but parenting is fundamental and it continues to exert its effects at every stage of the life cycle. Every clinical problem you present is occurring in a family or a relational context that can almost guarantee whatever gains people make in therapy can be undermined if the family is not on board. So what it means at a, a, a really um, practical level is that politicians have not got the message that parenting is important. We get these lip service statements to do with the importance of family, but it's often to do with family support and payments. We get all this stuff about the importance of mental health and investment in that area, but just a fundamental failure to recognise that it's by supporting parents and carers raise the next generation using evidence-based knowledge and tools that is the fundamental thing 
that will get in the road of shifting the problem at a population level. And so PAFRA has really argued strongly. This is the new Parenting and Family Research Alliance that's brought parenting researchers from around Australia together to work as one to argue for a population-based strategy and for this is an issue to be taken really seriously politically. Every party should be able to say, what's your policy on parenting support? Um, what's your policy on evidence-based parenting support? It'd be very interesting to see what their answers would be. I can see that type of approach really shift the needle when it comes to standard of living, the way that we deal with early intervention, oh. the way that we buffer against things that we can't stop, like, you know, still there there would be abuse and there would be, you know, vulnerable persons and economic strains and, you know, violence and, and, and the like. But to have a it's, strong buffer against those, you know, that that, that starts early would, would shift the needle. It has to. It, yeah, but it, it'll only do so to the extent that we're able to articulate the capabilities that both children and parents and carers need to promote different outcomes. So if you think about the life skills that children need to learn to be tolerant, compassionate, uh, a good friend, a good mate, to do well at school, to apply yourself, um, it's, it's, it's almost like the way I view it these days is that parenting support is really about the building of relational capabilities. So we want children to have good relationships with the parents, the siblings, the extended family, the grandparents, the uh, uh, any other uh, early educated, a teacher, a music instructor, a sports coach, but how about throwing in their relationship with the natural environment and their relationship with the animals of the world? If we can activate in children a protective response, do no harm, that, and you've got the skills that enable you to succeed, both individually but then also collectively, then we have to say, well, what are the reciprocal parent capabilities that are needed so we produce a future generation of children who are truly aspirational, see themselves as having personal agency, are great at collaborating and working with others, are fundamentally solution-focused, and that this is a formula for people's um, mental health and well-being. I look at, I think about it this way. Good parenting is the clean water of children's mental health, resilience, and well-being. And what you see is a multi-level, flexible funding, so that it's it's meeting uh, education. Uh, towards how to do parenting, self-regulation across the board, mm -hmm. not just in the hands of psychologists, but in the hands of adults, no. adults who yeah. are nurturing these children, whether it be you know, a sports coach, uh, a music teacher, whether it be our teachers, our nurses, pediatricians, uh, any, well, I suppose most importantly, those who actually have primary care responsibilities, you know, because they're the ones that are going to be investing the most amount of time, energy, uh, and and uh, model how to regulate um, and, and even how to just do life, how to package emotions for their kids and obviously for themselves. Yeah. It's those primary touch points, which is important. So, you know, we're not talking about uh, one profession taking over this, but in actual fact, you know, 
one community, the whole of Australia doing so, but that we've actually got policies and we've got funding that matches parenting. But also the funding and the policies match the fact that it is developmental. And that is that if you think about parenting support, what we need to think about is not just how to engage parents in a process of evidence-based parenting and support, but also recognising parents are engaging and leaving re-engaging and leaving, re-engaging and leaving, so that you want them to be able to have a fluidly accessible system that enables them to access the level of intervention support that they require to solve a problem. But subsequently, there are maintenance issues. There are new children. There are new transitions. And you can have a very successful early intervention only to for a parent whose kids' hormones are going crazy in adolescence to think, oh, my God, you know, what do I do now? And it's extremely stressful. We've got to get away from the idea of parenting support as a vaccination or something that's going to uh, have a one-off benefit that is going to last a lifetime. Yes. It's, it sh- we shouldn't think of it that way. And so, therefore, we need to say, well, what's the role of uh, psychology in delivering particularly interventions at the pointy end for non-responders where there's complex issues that re- require diagnostic formulation and maybe individual uh, uh, sessions or group sessions and in the uh, in the the era of covid we've got to think of it and how can you deliver this through zoom and other ways of um, you know telehealth and so on but the, the thing is that we should never um, assume, that our part of the process is the only important one. And we can be so self-serving and so can most disciplines in terms of guild mentality thinking, they forget why we're here in the first place, which is to solve a problem that the community has. And that's why our discipline exists. It's not not to just enable practices to survive and thrive, So if we're not getting any closer to shifting the needle at a population level, we'd have to be prepared to do the self-regulatory thing. Pause, reflect, uh, identify what are the values, what are the valued outcomes you're seeking to shoot. And if you have to rework things to, and this is what we've done with PAFRA. We've said, hey, let's stop all this um, uh, ignoring each other, damning each other with faint praise or attacking each other's programs to say, no, it's for the common good and it's the collective that we have to come together. A rising tide lifts all ships with evidence-based practices. There's, it's crucial to maintain individuality and identity relating to particular program names like Triple P, like tuning into kids, or well, we've got some great ones in Australia. But... We can't allow self-interest to dominate the need to work collectively. And so PAFRA is aiming to do that and is doing it. We're developing a really fantastic collaborative environment of knowledge sharing um, in a highly respectful way as a team of researchers who want to come together to assist solve a problem. Matt, can you it's talk about, us through? It's not about your citation rates and how how you know many grants you've got as an individual um, research organisation. That's important, but it's only a means to an end. It's not a mean, It's not an end in itself. 
Now, can you talk us through what you would like to see as being this next step? I mean, when we talk about whether it's parenting, you know, we, we mature and, and, and we become, I'd like to think, you know, more insightful okay. as we go along. Can, this is the can start I just, in a snapshot, it's, in a snapshot, it's this. We move to a, 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 a blending of universal and targeted programs based on the principle of proportionate universalism. Everyone has a right to something, but some need more support and more intensive intervention. We need to think of it longitudinally so that across the lifespan. Uh, we're doing work with grandparents, for example, and we have to ask the question, well, what does parenting look like when you're frail as a grandparent? and you're now moving into the latter stage of your life, we know that parenting is part of people's social identity. And it doesn't matter what age you are as a parent, it can influence how good you feel. Because if you're, you know, someone, you know, my age, I'm in my late 60s and so on, I've got grandkids. The thought of not having access to my beautiful grandkids and my own family for support at my age and in the life cycle would be pretty tough. And I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that we've got to see parenting as part of the benefit to children, but it's a multi-generational thing. Parenting is a vehicle for accomplishing at least change in three generations concurrently, grandparents, parents, and grandchildren. And so the, the other thing I'd just say is that we... In an age of technology, we do have to embrace uh, digital solutions, but we should never see digital solutions as taking the place of um, professionals who can provide in-person uh, interaction. It may not be in the same office in the future, but it certainly will be through an engagement, a relationship. Flexible delivery, multidisciplinary, um, culturally informed um, consumer and end user co-designed. And so no parenting solution should be set in concrete and every parent evidence-based parenting solution should be constantly nourished by ongoing R&D. I absolutely am opposed to people trying to disseminate evidence-based programs on the basis of a single trial that they showed worked. Because as soon as you claim something as evidence-based, people will say, well, has there been replication? Has there been independent replication beyond the developer? Um, what are the limits of this program? Who and when does it work for? Who doesn't it work for? And if you allow marketing spin to dominate the sharing of an evidence-based solution, you distort the science you parents sort of are then, I think, very vulnerable to what looks good, sounds good, feels good. And, you know, there's millions of hits on the internet for positive parenting. It's really hard to work out whether any of this has been properly trialled and evidence-based. And this is why I've devoted my career to the constant replenishment of knowledge that will inform the evolution of an evidence-based set of practices and to do so in a highly inclusive way and with a preparedness to share the learnings um, to any discipline who has a role. Matt, can you tell us about any examples that, are, uh, that you would say are, are, are good, good examples around the world? I, I know that, or even here within Australia, I mean, what, what should we be aiming for? Are there, are there some, well, something we can I mean, point just towards? To 
Yeah, just something close to home. Just something close to home. I mean, the Queensland government, as part of its policy, has um, uh, supported the statewide implementation of the Triple P system, and parents are able to, for example, for example, access the Triple P online uh, program, which has been supported by a number of randomised trials. is a very cost-efficient way of parents with early onset conduct problems to get a solution to access that uh, for for free for, for them as a consumer. Um, so the main thing is that you need a policy-based investment and we've got different parts of Australia who've got, um, they're definitely inf- influenced by a public health population-based way of doing it, but they've got to synergistically bring all the elements that are needed to produce a sustained solution that will shift the prevalence rates. Now, we've got a number of trials that have been funded, one by the uh, CDC in the US for a population trial of the Triple P system in South Carolina that was able to demonstrate um, using administrative data, population level reductions in hospitalisation and injury for child maltreatment-related injuries, out-of-home placements, and altered the growth of rates of founded cases of child maltreatment uh, in Ireland, um, in the uh, central uh, uh, counties in, in Ireland, they also did a, a similar population level implementation. We've done a couple in Australia, but it's it's to get the federal government to be able to say, look, the, the, the investments that are really needed have to do with having a population-based strategy that's properly funded in a sustainable way, because a lot of programs and services, they get a a one-year grant here, a two-year there, staff go, there's no sustainment. Um, It's it's kind of um, the problem that any population public health intervention experiences if there's not sustained planning. Um, And I've got to say, it has to involve a mixture of government, not-for-profit, but also business because businesses are needed to disseminate programs and to train a workforce. You've got to have a dissemination mechanism. Universities are not terribly good, you know, at uh, training a workforce um, uh, to to deliver evidence-based practices. So we need what are referred to as purveyor organisations who become specialised in doing this and very good at doing it. Whereas if we rely on university centres like mine, for example, who've got a constant change of staff around research and funding, and then the issue to do a sustained investment in dissemination and scaling, it needs another organisation to do that in partnership with the universities. And Triple P, of course, is owned by a major public institution, the University of Queensland. And so we've developed a mechanism of disseminating it that involves um, the the, uh, the commercialization of the training and dissemination arm that is um, separate to be able to do it. And I think sometimes you can kind of obfuscate things so it's not clear how all of this works and is funded. And um, so we think the model that we've developed at UQ is actually pretty good. It's not it's not perfect, but I tell you we're absolutely committed to the sustained investment of the research and development process so nothing in Triple P remains static. It can't, otherwise it's yesterday's news. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a real important need to look at this 
from a multi-level perspective, you know, as in also on the community cost, as you say, if, if we're seeing, for example, fewer hospitalizations in the, in the example that you provided, mm-hmm. it has to be a quantified cost, cost that, that, that we yeah. look at, not only in you know, resources, but other people who could get preventative um, work done during, during that time, the actual cost to the child, for example, who's now going to be out of school um, or you yeah, know, yeah. the distress of the parents. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how economists look at these things, but the, the cost would have to be absolutely exorbitant to, to, when you look at Well, these. the costing, you know, I mean, the issue about how you cost it and how you model it, it depends on the assumptions you make uh, sure, about sure. many things. Like, um, for example, some economic analyses of uh, the cost effectiveness of particular programs have been based on the cost analysis of what it costs to run the trials, which have meant not just the cost of implementation, but all the research costs involved with evaluation. Well, that that is not actually relevant to the sustained deployment of yeah, an intervention. Yeah. Now that's yeah. and so you get a distortion in the level of. It's important uh, cost to validate it at the start. Offset. My, my apologies. It's important to validate at the start, and there has to be an injection of cost. That's called your investment. That, that that's not called your yeah. ongoing cost. And and so therefore, that projection is is really ridiculous because you know you're only investing at the very beginning with the intensity and then obviously there would be a lesser R&D, so to speak, cost to continue um, yeah, looking well, at Well, not data. necessarily. It might be the R&D costs when you're looking at digital transformation actually goes up for a while sure, to sure. then produce a lower cost uh, for because you've got a scalable solution and it's a, it's a lower per person cost to access it. For example, our Triple P online program in a, what's called a non-feriority trial that was led by uh, uh, Professor Ron Prinzes, the uh, uh, principal investigator in the US, and I was a, uh, uh, an investigator on the trial, was able to demonstrate, um, you know, a massive difference in uh, the cost of delivering the online program to produce a similar outcome 12 months later to the in-person version of Triple P for level four in the, the system. Um, but the, the the main point that I'd, I'd make, however, about... Um, you know, cost offsets, you have to say to whose budget and at what stage of the R&D cycle, because you could have a cost um, offset, let's say to fewer people in in prison, that doesn't affect the health department's budget. Um, And so you've got to look at it holistically in a government sense. Um, But, I mean, I've been in meetings where people have said, look, please don't try to tell me that this is a cost-effective intervention, you know, because, and I was thinking, but I prepared (laughs) as as one of the points I wanted to make. And I was thinking, why would someone say, this is a policymaker saying, um, don't tell me this is going to save our department money because I don't believe it. And it, but it's a bias that they bring into the meeting. And so when you're talking about costs and cost, cost offsets, you've got to determine what level of cost offset is actually relevant to this person hearing this message. Um, and it's, it's sort of like diagnosing your audience about what, what's, what are the meaningful ways in which to best share the information because there's another side to cost and that is opportunity cost. You know, you're, you're putting money, your time and money into something, 
but foregoing doing something else. And I would say we've got, to, we've got to take this into account with the parents' investment of their own personal time. They could be attending a psychologist appointment that they could otherwise be reading a story to their child with or engaging in some other activity that promotes the well-being of their family. So whenever we look at the, the, this issue from an economic perspective, we have to see from whose perspective we're talking about including the deliverer of the service. So how often are programs, mental health programs and other programs funded to particular groups and never cover the real costs mm. of delivering it? You know, so they're constantly being subsidised. Interestingly, we, we, we don't even see an uptake in psychology in that space other than when it's done as an inpatient facility type of scenario, but you don't see the private sector at all doing any type of group you know, on, a, on, a, on a population sort of basis. That well, it's, and it's because so the, the, funding, so the, funding, the funding model hasn't allowed it to start off exactly. with, yeah. but with COVID, everyone's overwhelmed anyway, so people don't need to innovate yeah, to reach more people. And so what I'm, what I'm concerned about is our over-reliance on individual delivery as the primary mechanism for psychologists making a contribution, which is almost guaranteeing very minimal population reach. Um, and so we need to be constantly working on getting to larger numbers of parents at lower costs, but we're still preserving effect sizes of the intervention. Um, and that there's so much that our discipline base can contribute to that as a solution, which we've tried to do with, you know, seminar programs and we've done television series and online programs and podcasts and evaluated them all in terms of impact. But it required a kind of a flexibility of kind of thinking to be open to even considering there's another way than the traditional group and individual therapy where the therapist is considered to be truly indispensable. Well, if that were the case, then online trials with no therapists wouldn't produce comparable effect sizes. Yeah. How can how can people get involved? I mean, there, you know, there's there's a number of things that we've touched on, and I'm I'm assuming there's going to be listeners both within our profession, there'll be you know, parents out there who are listening. How can we get involved in, in trying to promote this? And, but I just suggest that we need to turn parenting support for all families around the globe into our equivalent of a climate crisis. We need to say that this is a cause that we need to put aside personal self-interest and disciplinary-based bias to join hands, to connect collaboratively. And so there's an opportunity coming up that we're driving out of Australia, but it's got a global focus called the um, International Digital Congress on Evidence-Based Parenting Support. And it needs to be digital because we have to reduce our carbon footprint, sending people all over the world to have an international congress. But what this will do is that it's aiming to be a starting point of a global conversation that has a very different way of sharing the science, sharing the knowledge with the different participants. And it's got to be reciprocal. It's got to be knowledge exchange. It's got to be focused on the well-being of us all um, to shift the needle at a whole of population level. 
what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on right now with uh, COVID and, uh, you know, internal displacements and climate anxiety in children, we are in a very different environment and we need parenting solutions that are fit for purpose. And so what I'd say is just get out there and support this. Um, look out for PAFRA, which is um, PAFRA.org, which is the, 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 the science drivers of this. Um, and you'll hear soon about um, the International Congress of Evidence-Based Parenting Support, June 68th. 2023. And um, so there will be an opportunity to participate in this global event that is um, truly looking to do things very, very differently in the future. Why should social science have such little impact on policy and practice when many of the solutions stem from the work that's needed? Um, not social scientists on their own, but to, to there's a lot we know about how to make this work and fail, but we're not actually very good at turning it into policy yet. Sounds like we can all contribute by having an ongoing conversation to continue to think about this, to, to write to important people and say parenting is important and to think about how we are as parents or as grandparents and how we connect with one another, to, to see this not as just a, a small event or pilot program, but, you know, we are parents for life. And, 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 and it's the beginning, that, of, a, and it's the beginning of a world movement, a global movement, where there's true valuing of the crucial importance of parenting and family well-being for children. We link it to the UN Sustainable Development Goals because it's related to many of them. You cannot achieve these without having um, personal, family and collective efficacy that there's something we can do that makes a difference. And if we build that, you know, what can I do into our thinking, um, let's stop competing and trying to, I mean, we're fighting over scraps of inadequate investment in this area. Um, the ARC and NHMRC's level of investment in parenting research is very low. Um, as uh, a recent uh, study uh, led by uh, Sophie Haverkurs from the University of Melbourne and a group of researchers from PAFRA has shown, but I'd say this, check out also the PAFRA website, but also the PFSC website at UQ, which will give you a sense of the kind of work that is ongoing uh, at UQ. But I would say that all of the other universities who are involved in parenting research have their own websites, and I encourage people to just connect, get behind it as a cause, and just think that supporting parents is not about prescribing it's not about judging it's not about are you a good enough parent it's about empowerment of parents to rise to the occasion to do what it is they need to do to raise their kids in a healthy happy stable environment it's called a home matt you are truly inspiring and i wish you the absolute best in your goal and i hope it becomes our goal to to go out and make a difference for for parents. I I can see the passion that oozes out of every word that that comes out of your mouth, and and 
you're looking at a, a global reach, not a, a small region. You're, you're saying, you know, this is one world. We're all the same. We just come from different countries, arbitrary lines on a on an earth. And, and, and let's make a real difference. And, and your contributions are, are incredible. And I, I uh, wish you the best with, with your goal. And thank you for your work, you know, to date and obviously uh, taking, taking the time to uh, speak to our audience. It's such an important message. Thank you, Nesh. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'll just end and saying this is a collective. I'm not on my own here. And there's a lot of great people behind this who I have to acknowledge and thank. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.